any questions or things you'd like to discuss? George? The experience of sensations or phenomena intensifying when you uh, bring your attention to it is, that's quite natural. And it's something like uh, looking at things through a magnifying glass. You know, as you focus your attention, it's like you see it more clearly, you feel it more intensely very often. And so that process. Uh, is not really, it's not so much influencing it as just seeing it more deeply. Um, so there's no problem with that. It, it, it's, not really a, it's not really an undue influencing you know, of it through the noting. It's just a, it's more a phenomenon of a stronger focus on it, which makes it appear to uh, become stronger. And there were times in my practice, just one example comes to mind, there are many though, um, where I just became aware of the pulse in my wrist, and by focusing on it, the pulse itself, it, it started feeling so strong and so sharp, it was, it was almost like a, you know, a pencil being jabbed up through, and it was, <laughs> it was quite amazing. Uh, just to feel it with that kind of sensitivity and that kind of intensity. Uh, is that what you were asking about? That phenomena? More with respect to mental states, when, when it's very subtle and in a gray area, mm -hmm. I find that the note seems to sometimes create the mental state that I wasn't sure of. And then what, as you note these mental states, and they become, they seem to become stronger, what will happen then? Then they go through their progression of getting more intense and passing away. Right. Um, I think that's fine. It's, it really sounds fine. Uh, it sounds like the same phenomenon to me of actually coming into a clear focus of what's actually there and a more intimate contact with it, rather than, especially with mental states which can be so diffuse and so difficult to focus on. Um, yeah, it's, it sounds fine, especially if you're able to stay mindful of the process, you know, of them becoming stronger, being with them, they're fading away. John. Thinking. Um, 
do you note uh, in 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 being aware of thought or investigating thought do you note the specific kind of thought it is like judging or planning or remembering yeah that i think of that as part of labeling right i think that's enough i, I don't think one has to investigate the content any further than that Investigating anger that has a lot of texture to it in the body and the mind. Right. Look, looking that way, that, that in thinking that the kind of just labeling the kind of thought is sufficient. Generally, it is one of the um, the checks for you to see whether it's sufficient or not is if you label the thought planning, remembering, judging and it goes away as you label it, then it's fine. No more need to be done. If you find that the thought is still staying there, you know, or repeating again and again, you might see if there's some emotional content connected with it, something that's not being acknowledged uh, that you need to explore, that you need to see. Sometimes, for example, suppose there's a lot of planning mind going on, planning thoughts, and you know planning, planning, but it still seems, the mind still seems to be hooked into that, into that tape. It would be interesting to see what's the energy, what's the emotion underneath the planning. Is there something which is fueling it? You know, it might be anxiety about the future, or it might be excitement or something like that. Uh, and then it becomes very helpful to see and to label and to note that underlying emotion. But generally, if you note the thought, it goes away, that's fine. There's no, there's no more that needs to be done. There's one other thing with regard to thought. Another aspect of the investigation, which to me is one of the most interesting things, is not only recognizing that it arises and naming what it is, but it's that careful looking or seeing exactly what the nature of a thought is. What is this phenomenon? You know, it's, it's as if one is holding that question in the mind, not necessarily asking it verbally, discursively, but holding that sense of interest because it's this amazingly powerful phenomenon. You know, it's, thoughts lead us around. Their thoughts are directing our lives. So it's a very pervasive power. And yet when you look at them carefully, when you really see, you know, and are able to be mindful of a thought, you see it's completely empty. It has no substance at all. So this paradox of something that's so powerful when it's not noticed and so empty when it is noticed, to me that's interesting. <laughs> you know, and just, just to get a sense of thought as a phenomena. You know, what is it? And you have countless opportunities to <laughs> observe it. <laughs> 
You, know, you miss it once, never mind. <laughs> There'll be ten zillion other times. <laughs> yes. Sometimes it happens when the mind gets more concentrated and you kind of settle in in a new way to the effortlessness of the breath and being with the breath. And the mind is just resting in it and feeling it. Uh, you might spend a little time, if the noting falls away at that time, spend a little time without it, without the noting, just feeling it you know, and being with that. Probably what happened is the thought came, oh, I'm not noting, and there was a, there might have been a slight agitation in the mind about that. You know, and so you jump in with a note too heavily for the delicacy of that state. And so when you started to note again, it kind of disrupted the, the ease of it. It is possible to use the noting or to work with the noting in increasingly refined ways, so that as we drop into more delicate spaces, the noting itself becomes more delicate. You know, just, just the lightest wisp of a note arising from within the breath, it can get very beautiful, just, just enough. Uh, but, but all of that is the practice. You know, and many times you'll have the experience you did. You, you know, it's, it's too, it's too heavy, it becomes too light, it becomes too slack, and so it's, it's a constant learning. Uh, you need not panic if the noting falls away a while. No. You don't want to be lazy about it. The, and so it's to pay attention to whether we're not the noting stops just out of a laziness of mind, or because you know we're right there, we're with what's happening, the noting seems to slip away a bit, but the mindfulness is still strong. Fine, just, just be with that for a while, and then very gently you know, bring the noting back in. Uh, so it's all this dance. Along those same lines, I, as my mind has become more concentrated, this, is, it, this just reminded me, it's amusing, that I've also begun to become very law, not lost, but concentrated in being aware of the breath. And at some point, I will miss all that confusion and want to go back to it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so familiar with all the turmoil. It's almost the same idea. Right, right. It's something. Right. 
I, wh when you start missing the confusion, I would note missing. missing. <laughs> My question has to do um, with uh, action. It has three parts. Um, in one of your uh, earlier talks, you said something about it's okay to take action, for instance, as a child moved to a fire. In other words, I've got three other situations in terms of action that I'm not quite clear of in terms of personal taking. One would be quasi-political action on the abortion issue, either side of public demonstrations, activism. The second would be action one would take seeing a, a disturbance like a fight between two people you care about or even two strangers where there could be damage. And the fourth, trying to get an understanding from the Buddhist context about the monks that performed self-immolation during the Vietnam War in terms of the context in which that action came. <laughs> There's a story of the, uh, <laughs> it's one of my favorite stories of uh, this dullard in the time of the Buddha, and he was given a, a verse of four lines to memorize, and he couldn't memorize it because just as he got the first line, he was working on the second, the second pushed out the first, and the third pushed out the second. So you may have to remind me. If... <laughs> Basically, the foundation to all of those questions, though, uh, it really comes back to motivation. It's not so much a question of acting or not acting. That will, that will come a lot from our personal inclinations and choices. The real sensitivity is needed. What's the quality, if we choose to act or not act, what is the motivation? Is the motivation coming from a place of care, of love, of compassion, of anger? of hatred, and the same action, the same political action or personal intervention could come from very different places. Um, in that regard, it's very simple, although it's not easy because to really understand our own motivations in a particular situation takes a lot of sensitivity and a lot of honesty. You know, because, I mean, you see, having sat here now for these many days, it's not that the mind is always in this space of sparkling clarity, <laughs> you know, where we see precisely exactly what it is that's arising. There's a lot of confusion going on, a lot of you know, mixed thoughts and emotions. And so it takes, it takes a real care and a real um, willingness to see the different sides of ourselves, to be willing to see the dark side you know, in a particular action, and just to check out, okay, what's, what's motivating me here? Um, 
to me that's the most important thing and from clarity about motivation then the choice of what to do becomes more clear I mean, even in terms of the, the situation of interpersonal relationship, you know, and whether one should intervene, it's interesting to know, okay, are we intervening because we can't bear the suffering or out of compassion? Those are two very different states. You know, if we feel so uncomfortable with the situation of suffering that we can't open to it, can't open to just being with it, so our intervention is just to ease ourselves. <laughs> That's very different than if we're really feeling the suffering and coming from a place of compassion for the suffering of others. So it's very, it's very intricate at times. You know, and so we need to be able to look at ourselves, and that's really what the practice is about. You know? With regard to the, the monks and the self-immolation, I really have no idea. Again, it would come back to whatever was really in their hearts and minds. You know, it's certainly not part of the classical teachings. I, you know, I hadn't never come across that kind of expression. So. Very good. You had been doing the sweeping well, method? Well, I started with the, the focus on the little spot on the top mm -hmm. of the head and working down for two years. Right. And then finally I graduated to flowing and sweeping. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And uh, now I'm back to not knowing what to do. Yeah. Uh, there are many. In Burma alone, there are over 50 ways of doing Vipassana. So there are lots of techniques. They all are cultivating the same thing. They're all cultivating the quality of mindfulness, concentration. I would do the practice that you feel most drawn to, you feel clearest about, you feel most at home with. It doesn't matter. They all lead to the same place. You know? um, and it's really just different ways it's really different ways of starting because even from these very different places of starting, my experience, having done several of these different techniques, the experience comes together at a certain point anyway. Um, 
I've always felt that we should do the practice that most inspires us to do it because the doing of it out in the world is so difficult. You know, whichever one is going to raise the inspiration and, and the effort to do it, I think that's the one to stay with. It's interesting that you should bring up um, the dark side. Uh, as a beginner, um, I really experienced that. And it's like, you know, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, you mm -hmm. know, the confrontation between the two. And. Um, so it's been a real purging personally for me uh, to go through something like this and uh, both spiritually, physically, emotionally, and anatomically. And, <laughs> and um, I just wanted to share that. And also there's a bench outside. Uh, one says metta and the other says upatika. Upeka. What, what does that mean? Uh, equanimity. There are the four Brahma-viharas, four states of mind which are related to the love and kindness, compassion, joy in the happiness of others, and equanimity. Uh, and somebody donated those benches with those, <laughs> those words. Uh, just a comment on what you said in terms of the practice opening to the dark side as well as the other side, and it feeling like, you know, Star Wars in there. I think one other footnote to that insight would be not to forget that it's a movie. <laughs> because the problem that we have in our lives is when we identify with these various states. That's when the drama happens. That's, that's the soap opera. That's the movie. The states themselves are going to be there. There's going to be this, and it can get very exciting and depressing and everything. You know, it's the whole show. And it's all empty. Empty in the sense of empty of self. None of those states belong to anybody. They're just arising out of conditions. If we can rest in the simple awareness of what's happening, the awareness itself is simple, it's easy, it's clear, it's at rest. It's just being aware, that's all. There's no problem there. The problem happens when we get identified, and from that identification, either condemn or grasp. So if we can just settle back, enjoy the movie. <laughs> Just when you're talking about enjoying the movie, um, if I sometimes feel a little self indulgent if I have a nice thought of someone, and actually, just today my mother has come to mind. Now, when I was walking, in fact, and I felt, well, I shouldn't be thinking about her, these, you know, because it's just a really good feeling, because that's not reality. I'm walking. <laughs> and so I felt very guilty. But why did you believe that thought? <laughs> that also is just a thought. Right? The thought that was condemning the meta thought. But I guess I, yeah, now this is getting a little... <laughs> 
really the only reality that I know. No. sensation. And that's just a, just a thought. So, I mean, I'm a, I, I, what I did do is kind of thought about it and smiled and, and then, uh, then I did kind of put it away because I thought to myself, well, I'll be seeing her soon enough. And then when I get there, I'll really enjoy that moment. <laughs> I think the whole process could be simplified. <laughs> you're walking, you're just with the movement, you're just with the step, thought comes of somebody, a kind of loving thought. You're aware of that as being what's happening in that moment. So in that moment, that's the reality of what's happening. There's a thought. It's associated with a good feeling. If you're simply aware of that, without then building a whole commentary around it one way or the other, either in terms of the judgment that you made or going off into a whole story about your mother and what you're going to do and you know, creating a whole, a whole scenario. But just in the moment, with the reality of a thought arising, a good feeling with the thought, you see it, you feel it, you enjoy it, it's gone. And then you're back to the walking. And so it's not closing off. It's not kind of, no, I shouldn't be having that. You know, it's not walking. It's staying very open, very gentle, but not proliferating. There's a, there's a word in Pali. It's called papancha. And it's, <laughs> it means proliferation or uh, expansionist tendencies. You know, so it, and this is what our mind is doing all the time, and that's where the problems come. It's this proliferating tendency. Instead of simply being with each of those experiences just as they arise, with them in the moment, letting them go, we then build on it. So I, I don't think the thought or that pleasant feeling in itself is a problem. You know, it's just there in the moment, you feel it, it's gone, you're back to the walking. And if you're aware of it as it comes up, that's not, you are still being in the present moment because that's what was happening in that present moment. But you're not being pulled into it, you're not building on it, you're not proliferating. I think generally that's fine. As you're with the breath, you're aware of some thoughts going by, but they don't really take you away from the breath. I would just stay noting with the, noting the breath. Occasionally, 
just as a way of exploring and perhaps sharpening the focus of attention with thought as an object. It's almost just like a chance to practice taking thought as an object. Occasionally, you could, you could be noting the thoughts as they come, even when you're not being carried away by them. In fact, that could be a good time to practice noting them precisely because you are aware as they're there, rather than waking up to them and having been lost. Uh, but you don't need to do that regularly. Do it occasionally, just as a way of exploring that. There's one basic principle of the practice, um, which is that you will always notice more than you note. You know? And so, especially as the mindfulness uh, gets stronger, you'll be noticing many, many things. There's, there's nowhere near enough time to note all of it. And that's fine. That's, that's how it should be. You can even put a general note on the whole activity. So, for example, chewing or tasting. And then within that, note, note, notice many specific things. Or put a note on every fifth object, every tenth object. You know, so you note, and then you notice a lot of things, then you note again, notice a lot of things. So you keep the thread of the noting going. Um, so you don't want to overload your experience with more notes than actually fit in. Do you follow? Yeah. So it's kind of backing away a little bit from how many notes you're making, but still keeping the clarity of the noticing. As a, um, as a beginner, um, the practice has been very strong for me. Uh, and uh, my question is about um, the the reality um, that it seems to be pointing to that you've been talking about. Um, it seems totally incompatible with conventional ideas about reality. Um, <laughs> And uh, my practice is not strong enough yet to give me personal experience of what you've been talking about. Um, and I'm going back tomorrow. And so I guess my question has to do with how you hold those two worlds. Um,
I, I mean, I see them as two sort of mutually exclusive worlds, and um, in my daily life there is a past and there is a future, and I have a self, and uh, I have to operate that way for most of what I do. Um, clear, my practice already is pointing in the other in, in the direction that you're talking about. Um, it's simple. It's it's it, it's really simple. <laughs> and the question is, how does one how does one integrate different levels of reality, or different perceptions of reality, even ones that seem apparently contradictory? I'll give an image first, and then. Uh, just some specific. You know, we look at this, and conventionally speaking, we see a bell. Right? And could spend a lot of time describing the bell, and, you know, could ring the bell, and we use it. And there's no problem with that. If you looked at this through a high-powered microscope, bell would disappear there would be no bell, you would see a whole other order of reality. By seeing that, by understanding, and, and the, the more powerful you know, tools of investigation you had, basically the emptier it would become. <laughs> you know, you go into atomic and subatomic and quarks and <laughs> whatever all those things are. You know, until it's mostly empty space. But the seeing of that doesn't mean that we don't use the bell. It doesn't mean that we give up the conventional level of perception and of use. In exactly the same way, there is a conventional understanding of I, of self, of time, of past and of future. All these concepts refer to a relative kind of reality that we need to use. And we do use in our lives. The question is whether we're imprisoned in that level or we have a much bigger and deeper, more complete understanding, a truer understanding of the essential nature of things from which understanding then we can operate on the relative level without being imprisoned by it. It enables us to make much wiser choices be much less compulsive or addictive you know, in our mental behavior, in our physical behavior. And we can operate very easily from a relative place, but there's a wisdom which is informing it, a much deeper wisdom, which leads to... to actually leads to tonight's talk. <laughs> <laughs> which is about how to live happily. Uh, so there's really not a, there's not a conflict. It's an understanding that there are different levels, and we can use them. We can operate on the level that's appropriate to any given situation. The problem for most people is that they live only 
with the understanding of the con conventional relative level. Because without having done the work to explore more deeply, that's the only world that's known. You know, so there is identification with the body and thoughts and emotions as being self, as being I. You know, and as long as there's a strong self and we're attached to it, it needs to be defended, it needs to be gratified, it needs a lot of things follow from it, from that understanding. As soon as our understanding changes, then the way we operate changes, even though we still operate on the relative plane. Do you follow? So, and this is, this is the joy of practice in our lives. You know, it's just we continue our practice, we continue to deepen our understanding, and it's an ongoing process. It's not, it's not just one thing that we get. It's a continual deepening and unfolding. And the deeper our understanding is, the more that transforms the way we do interact and relate. So the whole thing's very beautiful. It's... <laughs> you know, you, uh, you're just talking about certain concepts that we have in ordinary reality. And the sutras talk some about exploring things like non-ego, etc. Is there ever a time that it's that in a practice like this that's valuable to take five minutes, half an hour, and actually just use the conscious mind and go through as many things as possible on lack of ego or <coughs> impermanence? In other words, you, you certainly talk to practice every way. Is there a point at which that's a valuable thing to do? The question is about whether it's helpful or important to, to use the discursive uh, mind for reflection. I think there is a time when it can be helpful, it can be clarifying, it can be inspiring. Uh, it's not a substitute for the practice. And so it's just to, to be very clear about that. Um, I mean, the Buddha, he recommended study and reflection uh, because it, does, it rounds out, you know, our experience of the Dharma. It really can clarify things. Um, it's, one, it's precisely this question which motivated, you know, some of us to try to begin this new center for, for Buddhist studies, just down the road, uh, as a place where people can actually study the texts and, and discuss, you know, some of these very basic ideas, because it does uh, support the practice in one's understanding. But it's the practice which gives us the actual experience of it. Um, well, um, we just started quite recently. Um, it's called the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Uh, it's just down the road. If you if you go out and you turn left, down towards Barry, it's the first left turn. It's a, a dirt road, and it's ends at this farmhouse. Uh, I suggest, if you like, you know, at some point, either 
this afternoon and tomorrow you could walk down. Uh, and we're just beginning to set up a program, you know, of courses through the year with more emphasis on study, theoretical investigation, texts, poly. And it's just, it's, it's in the very beginning stages. We're just, we're just sort of exploring what the program should actually be. But it's quite an exciting project, and I think it complements very well what, what we do here. Maybe if, if I think of it, I'll, I'll ask uh, Deborah, who's the director, to bring up uh, a bunch of brochures which we can put out. Um, I think we have to stay with the first part. <laughs> um, that sense of being catapulted back from uh, a thought back to the breath. It could be that there's some emotion connected with the thought that you don't want to open to or experience. And so it might be interesting just to see you know, if there is. Uh, it could also just be an idea in the mind, oh, I'm not supposed to be thinking, I'm supposed to be on the breath. You know, and so there's some kind of judgment about thought as an object, which is catapulting you back, rather than a particular emotion contained in the thought. So it could be really either of those two things. And it's just to say... Um, Well, as, as a general rule, you don't want to go back, you know, as, as, a, as a practice of keeping going back to investigate what's already gone. But occasionally, you know, if you find that that pattern happens a lot, occasionally you might just to get some clarity about actually what went on. Uh, but as I say, that should just be done selectively. Where the path leads. Actually, that's tonight's talk, too. <laughs> it's a five-hour talk. <laughs> but it really is... Because really what the path is about, it's the path of happiness. And it's the path which leads through deeper and deeper kinds of happiness. And that's what we'll talk about. It's time for the first lunch, so I suggest you might want to go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.